Well, good morning to our service this Sunday after Thanksgiving. I hope you had a, a great Thursday with uh, those that you love and uh, had a time to uh, thank God for his manifold blessings. So many this year in the midst of so many things, so many blessings. So I'm glad you're with us on this Sunday morning. And uh, as we uh, begin at, or continue in the series on David, we've been studying the life of David. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And I'm going to read verses 10 through 14, 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 14, and it goes like this. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, Look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Well, as I said, we continue this morning in our study of what uh, could only be described as an extraordinary life. The life of David, the poet, the shepherd, the warrior, the king. His life must have been extraordinary because here we are in 2021, 3,000 years removed from the man himself, and we're not only talking about him, we're studying his life. He was called a man after God's own heart, a man whose heart was for God, which is easy to see when David was humble and courageous and faithful and trusting of heart, and when that was fully on display, we get it, a man after God's own heart but not so much in the chapter of his life that we're going to be briefly examining this morning. Certainly, the story before us this morning is a dark, actually an embarrassing chapter in the life of David. One writer in commenting on this episode in the life of David wrote this, In the development of Christian character, there sometimes comes moments when darkness seems to fall the sun seems to set, and to the man himself, everything seems lost. Other people observing his life wonder if he is sinking beyond all hope of recovery. I wonder if observers said that about David when this narrative actually happened. In the section we just read, we see a, a man ensconced in fear. Gone is the young, courageous, faith-filled shepherd boy who was so incensed when he showed up at the front line of the battle between Israel's armies and the Philistines. Do you remember that? Who, when he showed up at the front line to bring his brothers, his brothers some food and some provisions from home, he heard the taunting and the utter contempt of Israel's army, and so Israel's God, by Goliath, the giant. And he heard it, and he said, is anybody going to step up? Wait a minute. Don't worry about it. Let me go. I, I, I got this. God and I, we got this. And as he approached the modern equivalent of an M1 Abrams main battle tank, he said this. 
You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Quite a speech. But now we see him on the run, fearing for his very life, literally, shamefully, so bereft of faith in that same Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, that he's cowering before a pagan warlord, pretending to be insane in the hope that this same pagan warlord might merely dismiss him instead of hurting him. How in the world does something like this happen? How did the man of God come to this place? How does a man who was so sure and so confident in God's calling and purposes in his life fall to pieces like a dropped piece of fine china? And more importantly, how in the world could God possibly use such a shameful period of exposure to bring any good to the man after God's own heart? This story certainly supports the notion that a convert could be won in a minute while the saint is manufactured over a lifetime of experiences both good and bad things. That was then, but it's also true now. So how did it happen? What brought David to this place? Well, first of all, before we talk about that, you got to know something. This did not happen overnight. This sort of downward transformation never, ever does. He doesn't courageously go up against Goliath on a Tuesday morning, and by Wednesday afternoon, he's cowering in fear before Achish. It's more like you know the story of the frog and the frog in the pot water. How do you how do you cook a frog? You put him in lukewarm water and you heat it up slowly, and then before long you have frog legs on the menu for dinner. It happens slowly. Here's what happened. Simply put, the things that David, unbeknownst to him, had come to slowly trust in for his safety, for his emotional well-being, for his self-worth, were one by one taken away. How so? Uh, since we are not going through First and Second Samuel chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we need to do a little backtracking. After David's great victory on the battlefield against Goliath, Saul, the king who was living on borrowed time since uh, God had already rejected him because of his disobedience, brought David into his service, which was really a smart thing. Hey, look, Saul was a disobedient man. He wasn't a stupid man. He saw that there was something special about this young guy. So he brought him into his service, gave him lots of responsibility. In fact, chapter 18 tells us that he became sort of Saul's special envoy. Verse 5 said this, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. It's always a good thing to keep the officers and the troops happy, right? So now David, David, this young shepherd turned soldier, had rank, he had responsibility, and he had wide respect amongst the movers and shakers of Israel. Which is probably, you know, if you're a young guy, kind of a nice feeling, right? Everybody's saying, hey, boy, David. That's got to make you feel good, right? Now, you would think that Saul would just be so pleased as punch with the arrangement. I mean, David is fighting the battles. David is winning battles. David is doing uh, great things in Israel. 
But something had started to happen to Saul as a direct result of his continued disobedience to God and of his shirking of his responsibility that God had given him. He had started to become unstable. Unstable spiritually and unstable emotionally. It is what happens to people who have positioned themselves at the center of the universe. When that happens, there are things that uh, set people off, like when a subordinate is given more praise than the boss. That'll set the boss off almost every time when they start to become a little emotionally frayed at the edges. Immediately, we're told, when the men returned home from routing the Philistines after their champion had been killed, they greeted them with a ballad that some songwriter had, had, had penned, which would have reached the people at home before the army arrived itself. Usually weeks later, the army arrived, but there was a runner who told them what happened in the battle. And some songwriter wrote this song. And one of the verses went like this. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, Saul, when he heard this, probably said at the first part of that verse, he probably said, oh, I like that. Saul has slain his, his thousands. But then it goes on and says, David, his ten thousands. What was his reaction? Verse 8, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Soon after this, uh, David was playing the lyre, an instrument in Saul's presence, and Saul tried to kill him. He, threw a, he literally took a spear and threw it at him, trying to kill him. The guy who had made his life easier, David, was now the guy he wanted to kill. And the reason for that is that buried inside his insanity was something that is at the root when people begin to unravel. Verse 12 says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. Writer H.G. Wells once said of Mr. Polly, the main character in one of his books, he was not so much a human being as a civil war. That would be a perfect description of Saul at this point in his life. Here's a truth that many may not even be aware of. Oftentimes, the very people who are out to get us are the ones who are most afraid of us. Verse 15 says, when Saul saw how successful he, David, was, he was afraid of him. You know, you may wonder from time to time why John at work or Susie at school or Stephanie who sits on the board with you has all of a sudden started to act differently to you. And you begin to wonder what you did to elicit their ire. It could be, it just could be that you're like Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph, who the Lord blessed because of his integrity blessed because he was a, a man willing to sacrifice. He was a man who was able to forgive and was desirous of seeing others blessed, even ahead of himself. Maybe you're somebody like that. Whether he found themselves in Potiphar's house or in prison or at the heights of government in ancient Egypt, scriptural, the scriptural assessment was this in Genesis 39. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. The Lord gave him success in everything he did. The man or woman who live to honor God, who follow his laws and his leading, will end up 
generally speaking, being blessed by God in a myriad of ways. And sometimes when people see that, when people view the hand of God in the life of an individual, and they they don't and cannot attribute to God's working, they will often become fearful of you because you all of a sudden are seen as a threat to getting what they want. At the same time, they notice a God-blessed success settled on you. Something else settles on them, a fearful dread. It just may be that the way you go about your life exposes the shallowness and failures which characterizes their own life. And they may end up throwing a spear or two in your direction. Beware. So when you say, is it me? The answer just may be, yeah, it is. Not because you've done anything wrong, but just because God's hand is upon you. And sometimes that makes people afraid. David had done nothing wrong, yet Saul was now out to get him. It's a good thing for you when you're on a first-name basis with the king and he has you on speed dial. That sort of thing gets around. People hear about it and they want to be close to you and kind of warm themselves in your glow. But when the king's countenance changes and he's now against you, let's just say that you really find out quickly who your friends are. It can be an unsettling thing when one minute you're the flavor of the month and the next you're in the trash bin. There's a loss of prestige. There's a loss of command, even a loss of safety. What it is, is a loss of position. And if we are not careful, unbeknownst to us, something like position can quickly become a main supporting structure that holds us together. A crutch to kind of lean on. Now it became evident that David no longer had that crutch to lean on. He no longer had that advantage. David, we see a few verses down in chapter 18, had a partner. He had a wife. She was the daughter of Saul who was trying to kill him. Imagine that. It seems that his daughter, Michal, had fallen in love with David. Why not? At first, David, you know, Saul's reaction when, she, when, when he heard that his daughter was falling in love with David probably was, absolutely not, no way, forget it. But then he thought about it and he said to himself, wait, 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 time out, just a minute. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so, so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Now, listen, that doesn't sound too flattering. I know how to destroy this guy. I'll marry him off to my daughter. She's driving us crazy. Let her drive him crazy. She'll destroy him. But it it wasn't really like that. As part of the dowry that David would have to provide to her family to marry her, it would be um, the foreskins of a hundred of Israel's enemy combatants, the Philistines. Don't even ask, okay? No, I, I don't know why. I do know that Saul's request was in hoping that in one of these hand-to-hand battles, one of the Philistine soldiers would kill David. I mean, what's the odd odds that the guy is going to go up against 100 guys and he's going to be 100 out of 100, right? But he does. He is successful. And Michal and David are married. But now Saul 
is even more afraid of David than he was before. And now he actively plots to kill him. But Michal, his wife, hears of the plot and alerts her new husband, and David slips away. Now, when Saul heard that his own daughter had let the enemy slip away, had, had really deceived her own father, he angrily storms through the door and angrily confronts her. But instead of saying, Daddy, you're out of your mind. He hasn't done anything to you. Why are you trying to kill my husband? She instead lies. And she says, he, David, said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? She tells her father, Saul, that David threatened to kill her if she didn't let him go. So now Saul hated David even more, thinking that he threatened the king's daughter. Although in the future, they did live together again, David and Michal. They never lived in harmony again after that. David's position had been cut out from under him. David's partner betrayed him. He no longer had those crutches to hold him up. So David, in his flight, decides to go to the one guy he could trust, the one guy on the planet, the one guy who had always been in his corner, had always supported him, had always encouraged him, the one guy who knew him from the very beginning, the prophet who had anointed him king to take Saul's place, Samuel. When Samuel had fled, when David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Samuel assesses the situation once he hears David's story. He knows that people may be watching them at that very moment. And he says to David, let's go to Naoth. No one's going to find us there in that labyrinth of homes squished together one up against another. But before they could even unpack once they got there, someone indeed notices David and sends word to Saul of his whereabouts. And Saul sends out his assassins to kill David. And David once again is forced to flee for his life, leaving his own personal prophet, Samuel, the man who had steadied him in the past through, through his wisdom, who had encouraged him through God's promises, who had been his rock in the past, who had represented God Almighty, the God whom he served here on earth. He leaves him now behind. And one by one by one, the things he had come to rest in for his stability and for his help and for his strength were being kicked out from under him. And you could just see his emotional and spiritual stability crumbling. But there was one more loss that he was about to absorb. The loss, the loss of his BFF, his brother, the bestest pal he had on the planet, Jonathan. At first, Jonathan didn't believe that the king, his father, who happened to be his father, was trying to kill David. No, 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 you're out of your mind, David. He would never do that. He tells me everything he's going to do. I haven't heard anything about him trying to kill you. Finally, David convinces him. And, and, and you know, Jonathan believes it. And in one of the last meetings they would ever have on earth, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, it says this. David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Then David left 
and Jonathan went back to the town. David wept the most. Why? Because here was the final leg of support being kicked out from under him. His pal, Jonathan. Have you ever had a front row seat to someone who right before your eyes, emotionally, spiritually, and sometimes physically, just melted down before you? Has it ever happened to you? I have watched people, high-paid professional people, highly regarded in their field, given pink slips, and in a matter of months are sitting metaphorically like Job on the ash heap, scraping themselves with broken pieces of pottery as he did. I've watched people, good people, good people, go through painful relational breakups like a divorce. And if I didn't know better, I would have thought that they were literally going out of their minds. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. But it's when all the props have been kicked out from under us that sometimes we come to the realization of who and what has been holding us up in the first place, maybe for years and years, and we didn't even realize it. And it can be a shocking, fear-filled realization. But once that ultimately you know, kind of hits home to you, it can bring you to a better place. David had lost his position. David had lost his partner. David had lost his prophet and his pal, and he literally began to fall apart. You know, you can learn a lot about a person by seeing who they turn to in times of desperation. Now, this would have been a great time for David to write one of those great songs that he wrote so many of, extolling the greatness of God and David's firm trust in his ever-present leading. But that's not what happened. Instead, David turns to the least likely person in the least likely place on the planet for comfort and for, and for protection. Verse 10 says, That day David fled from Saul, and he went to Achish, king of Gath. He turns to Achish, king of Gath, the birthplace, by the way, of hometown hero Goliath, remember him, deep in the heart of Philistine territory. Now, why in the world would he go to the enemy, deep in the heart of enemy territory, for help? You know, my favorite, my favorite Christmas movie is uh, It's a Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed. It was required viewing for our family for years and years and years. Sometimes my kids didn't watch it. I said, you're watching this movie, and they had to sit down, and they had to watch it. <laughs> Uh, Jimmy Stewart plays George Bailey, who is a man who's, who's given up his personal dreams in order to help others in the community, and whose suicide attempt on Christmas Eve brings about the intervention of his own personal guardian angel, Clarence Oddbody. Clarence shows George how he, George, has touched the lives of others and how different life would have been for his wife, Mary, and for many people in the community in Bedford Falls if he had not even been born. And on Christmas Eve, 1945, as the town prepares a hero's welcome for war hero Harry, Harry Bailey, which is George's younger brother, George's uncle Billy, who works at the building and loan, goes to the bank to deposit $8,000 of the building and loan's cash. It's there that the town villain, Mr. Potter, ugh, just hate him, steals the cash 
from poor, dim-witted Uncle Billy. And a frantic, fruitless search is initiated for the lost money, which, of course, doesn't show up because Mr. Potter's got it in his desk drawer. With the bank examiner reviewing the company's records, George realizes scandal and criminal charges are sure to follow. Fruitlessly retrace, retracing Uncle Billy's steps, George berates him and he takes his frustration out of his family. Oh, I hate that scene in the movie. Makes me, makes me so upset. All of a sudden, George, knowing they're not going to find this money and knowing all this is going to come down on him and he's probably going to end up in jail and it's going to be a disgrace and the whole party for his, for his war hero brother is going to go down the tubes. He does the unthinkable. The illogical to us who are watching on the television screen. He appeals to Mr. Potter for a loan, offering his life insurance policy as collateral. Potter tells George that he's worth more dead than alive. And then he picks up the phone to call the police to have him arrested. So you say, why would a man like George Bailey ever go to a scoundrel like Potter? One reason and one reason alone. He was desperate. He, in his mind, had nowhere else to turn to. Only Potter had the money that would avoid scandal and keep him out of jail, and he knew it. But listen, when you make a deal with the devil, he ends up dictating the terms. And the terms always involve the destruction of your soul. The compromises... The lies, be, becoming yoked with people of dubious character, often seems to be the price of doing business, doesn't it? But the price you think you're paying is often not nearly the real price. There was only one place that David thought he would be safe, or so he thought, next to the baddest dude in the neighborhood. It made a certain kind of sense to him. It had a certain kind of logic. But when we try to run to anything and anyone but God, when all the supporting legs have been kicked out from us, we will always end up disappointed and we will always end up paying a terrible price. So David arrives in Gath and almost immediately he's busted. His reputation had preceded him. And, and, and some guy's looking at David and he whispers to the guy next to him. He says, isn't this David? the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? The other guy goes, yeah, I think it is. And now David is in more trouble than he was before. Verse 12, David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. And if it ever happens that your props are kicked out from under you, I guarantee the one thing you will feel above every other emotion is fear. What is fear? When when does it come? Well, fear results when we feel a threat to our well-being or to our very survival, whether the threat is actual or just potential. And all of our fears find their origin in one thing, a desire to control the world, to control the world around us, at least control our world. It's the fear of losing that that makes us so afraid. (laughs) It's the fear of losing what's important to us, whether it's our job or family or reputation or our health or even our lives. 
At the heart of all our fears is the terror of losing control. David had lost all control of where his life was headed. And as a result, he was literally falling apart. Chuck Swindoll wrote this. He said, when every one of your crutches is removed, things begin to erode. As the erosion continues, you begin to think differently. And then you begin to replace those thoughts with strange thoughts. And then you begin to lose sight of the truth. And then you hit rock bottom. You would think that here was David's rock bottom. Here's, here's David at the end. But just when you think he's reached the bottom, a trap door opens up and there's still another level of degradation. It says, so he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. And, you know, you, you read this and, and, and you read in the account and you almost feel like, like you want to, you know, you, you want to look away. It's too painful. It's, it is the worst thing when you see people who you love totally embarrass themselves. Isn't it, isn't it horrible? There he is. There's our guy. There's the, 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 the champion of the battlefield, the future king of Israel. And he's humiliating himself before the dregs of the world because, of all, his, because all his props have been kicked out from under him, leaving him in abject fear and bringing disgrace to the name that he once so bravely defended on the battlefield. Remember what I said about Satan? He dictates the terms. He wants to destroy your soul, and he wants to destroy God's name among the people. Aker said to his servants, look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? He was the king, the man appointed by God to lead the people of God, the man appointed to accomplish his purposes on the earth through his people, and he's cowering, and he's playing the part of a lunatic. How shameful. How embarrassing. But listen, this is what fear does to us. The psychological and physiological effects of fear and, and what I would call or actually end up in what I would call behavioral abnormalities. Yeah, strange thoughts, uh, uh, Swindoll referred to it as. Losing sight of the truth, doing things that we never thought and, and having thoughts that we never thought we would ever have. We begin acting in ways where we embarrass ourselves and have outside outsiders look at us thinking, you know, What's all this fuss about following the God of Israel, this great God, the God of creation? You know, I, I, I mean, look at this guy. He's acting no different than I would act if I was in his situation. There's no difference between how he's handling desperate times and how I would handle desperate times. See, this is the effect of fear in our lives. It destroys our testimony because people are watching. 
Have you ever had your crutches, things you leaned on heavily to navigate through life, literally kicked out from under you? When you were young, your, your parents were always there. Then because of death or divorce or just life going on, they weren't. You had friends, good friends, but there was a shattering betrayal. And then they just weren't there anymore. The job you gained your self-worth and security, it was phased out. The educational goal that you had focused on and worked towards, well, it had to be put on hold or next altogether. You always thought that you'd be married, at least by now. But they've all been kicked out from under you. And then one day you wake up and you feel alone and you feel scared. But listen, it may be that God has purposely allowed the things that unbeknownst to you have been your main help, that you have always put your full weight upon for support and well-being. He let them kind of be kicked out from under you. Why? Because he knows that your props will never sustain you. And he knows, he knows a couple other things too. He knows that whatever props you have, they're only going to offer temporary relief from your fear and from your insecurities. You know, this surgery I've, I've just come through, those of you at the crossing know that, was the most physically painful experience that I have ever had in my lifetime for days. I did try and gain relief from the never-ending spasms that had me clutching a pillow, unable at times to even breathe, it seems. I took prescribed pain medication, and you know what? It helped. Somewhat. For a while. But the pain always came back, and it came back with a vengeance. You will find that any prop you lean on in times of pain will help you for a little while, but they will ultimately fail you. And God help the person who plays the part of our crutch. When they fail us, as they surely will, they will incur our wrath. You fall in love, you get married. It's what you always wanted. Uh, you know, it's what you always thought you needed in this life to meet your needs. But that person was never meant to hold you up, was never meant to sustain you. And the chances are, if you continue to have them as a prop in your life, you will destroy them. See, any kind of prop that we have is uh, just offers temporary help, temporary relief. It brings a lot of complications, too. See, God knew that. God also know, knew that props could easily become substitutes for himself. So do not fear, for I am with you, Isaiah wrote. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God offers himself to lean heavily upon as we travel in this life. But if we have other things that we instead are looking to for support, for main support, God will never be able to take the place of as our rock, as our protector, as our guide that he wants to be in, our, in the life of his children. And there, th there are things in your life uh, that, uh, uh, that maybe you've always leaned heavily upon to save you in this life. Maybe there are. Are there things that you cannot imagine going away from for support? Because in your mind, you'll, I mean, you'll die. You'll just die without them. 
As long as you lean on them for temporary assistance, you cannot lean on God. You can't lean in two different directions. David was shattered as his crutches, one by one after another, were kicked out from under him. And yet, and yet we know that David survived past this chapter in his life. He not only survived, but he thrived. How so? How was David able to find victory over the loss of the crutches in his life that represented stability to him? How did he overcome the fear associated with those losses? Well, we have a record of how he did it from his own hand in Psalm chapter 34. He overcame fear with fear, different kind of fear. Psalm 34 was written by David. The occasion is written in the subscript. It says of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, another name for Achish, who drove him away and he left. In verse 6 of Psalm 34, David, speaking of himself, says, This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed or happy is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. You know what the fear of God means? Basically, it means two things. First, it means to be in utter, absolute awe of God. And to, to do that, you got to get to know Him. Uh, to be intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, physically overwhelmed by, by the greatness of God, by His holiness, by His separateness, the, the power, the purity, the righteousness, the justice, the greatness, the glory of God. How many of us can, or even touching the surface of knowing all those things about God, but when we fear him, that's what it, that's what it means. It doesn't mean to be afraid of him. It, it means to, to, to kind of uh, uh, stand in awe of those things. And then the next step, when, once you're in awe of those things and you start to understand what, what God is all about and you read up in his word what he's like and you pray and you get to know him better. Secondly, you're going to have reverence for God. It means to fall down on one's face before God in honor, in, in, in homage, in adoration, in worship. It's what we do. It's, it's the proper response when we understand and begin to understand how great God is. See, that's the fear of the Lord. Now catch this. David, through failure, had learned that when he, and all these phrases are found in this chapter, when he sought the, sought the Lord, when he looked to the Lord, when he called on the Lord, when he cried out to the Lord, in his trouble and in his affliction, in situations where all the props had been kicked out, that something strange, something good happened. He began to see an increase in his fear of the Lord. As he redirected his attention from his fears, brought about by the loss of the props that he had in his life that were holding him up artificially to a God who's worthy of nothing less than awe and reference, he began to change. And you know what happened? He became happier. That's, that's what the Psalms, that's what David said in Psalm 34. And he began spontaneously to praise. He began to see the goodness of God. Verses 1 through 3 do not sound as if they're coming from a, a man paralyzed by, by his fears. Listen to what he said. 
He said, I will extol, extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. The only answer for the fear in our lives is the fear of the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning, you're watching by way of the internet, and in recent days or months, the things that you've held tightly to for your security and help and well-being, well, they've fallen apart. The unthinkable has happened, and you are frankly afraid. You don't even know what life's gonna look like a month from now. The only way you will be victorious over those fears from the loss of your props that you were never meant to rest upon is to fear God more. To fear the Lord is to be uh, the, like the disciples who feared for their lives. Remember in the midst of that terrible storm in the book of Acts? I mean, it looked like just, you know, everything was gonna uh, fall apart. But after seeing Jesus calm the storm with just his words, they stood in awe. In Mark, it was in Mark chapter four. And he said this, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Awe and worship. The only answer for the fear in our lives is the fear of our Lord. In this crucible of heartache, God had a purpose in mind for David. It was to prepare David for the throne for which he had already been chosen. Christian, listen to me. God says that you are destined for glory. You one day will reign with Christ. The temporary hardships, the painful kicking out of the props upon which, unbeknownst to you, you have leaned on to navigate through life are meant for a good purpose. It is meant to prepare you for your throne to rule with him. And you have a choice. You can continue to try and cling onto someone or something to lean on to give you support, or you can lean on God and God alone. You have nothing to fear if you fear the Lord. The only answer for the fear in our lives is the fear of our Lord. And Father, we pray for those who in recent days have had those props, those crutches kicked out from underneath them. And they're in pain and they're afraid. Oh God, I pray that they would cling to the fear of the Lord, that in awe they would be reminded of who you are about your greatness, how you have promised to care for your children, and they will break out in spontaneous praise and worship, oh God. Fear of the Lord. And God, I know that if we do that, if they do that, that fear in their heart is going to be replaced with joy as the fear of the Lord takes precedent in their life. So I pray for that for every one of us, God. Every one of us here who have leaned in the wrong direction on the wrong things, oh God. Be gentle. 
Show us, Lord God, how maybe we've leaned on the wrong thing. And let us instead lean fully and wholly on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.